Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. thought about the fact that week after week we come together to study God's Word. Uh, And there's a lot of people outside our walls who think we're in a rut. (laughs) Why keep studying the same book over and over and over again? You know, when I was in seminary, I had a crazy teacher uh, who once required us to read 8,000 pages in one semester. And uh, I got to thinking, that's the equivalent of reading through the Bible almost eight times. And and then I thought, you know, if a person can read 8,000 pages in a semester at college, why do we spend a lifetime studying just one book? You know, in, in one of my classes, I read Moby Dick. And uh, it was a book about 500 pages. And after I read it, I had the storyline filed away in this magnificent mind of mine. (laughs) And I had no desire to read it again. (laughs) I knew what happened. I knew where it was going. Nothing would be more boring to me than reading and rereading Moby Dick a dozen times, even though some literary scholars say it's one of the best books ever written. And so why do we read and reread this book every day, year in and year out? Add to that that this is an old book. And there's a lot of people who suggest that it's no longer really relevant to us. It's not relevant in our culture. It doesn't really have anything substantial to say to the 21st century American They question that it really has answers for us. They believe the Bible is a product of its culture and therefore a collection of irrelevant and oppressive sometimes ideas. They claim that its morals are outdated and that it's completely out of touch with the way we're living life today. And so every once in a while, you know, this this sermon's kind of like... Going back to the basics, you know, holding up a football and saying, what's this? It's a football, you know. That, that, that's kind of what I'm doing this morning. But I'm just, I want us to kind of get excited about this book. <laughs> I, I want us to get moved by the fact that this is a, this is a unique book. It, it's not just a book about God. It's not just a devotional book. It's not a history of the acts of God. It's not just a philosophy of life. It's not just a treasury of good quotes. It's not just an instruction manual for living. It's all these things, but it's so much more than that. This book is God's word to us. It's God's revelation of himself to his creation. It's God sharing with us what he thinks is important. He's our creator. 
It's him declaring his will. It's him, him putting his ideas into writing so we will always have it. It's unveiling his thoughts to us. And, and, and there's nothing I desire more in life than to know and understand God. And, and in this book, God says he gives us everything that's necessary for us to glorify him. It's necessary for our salvation. That's necessary for our faith. It's necessary for our life. They, they, they've all been clearly written down in this book for us. <laughs> Everything is spelled out, and, and the things that aren't spelled out specifically can be deduced from Scripture. They can, you can reason from Scripture and understand even the things that aren't spelled out specifically in the book. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's complete. You know, the more I read this book, the more I'm in, enthralled by it. It's not like Moby Dick. <laughs> Paul Tripp said this. He says, I have thought many times that I would not know how to live life without the wisdom of God's word. He said, I wouldn't know how to be a, re a responsible man without God's word. Without Scripture, I wouldn't know right from wrong. I wouldn't know what was really right, and I wouldn't know what was really wrong. Without the truth of the Word, I would not know how to understand or respond to suffering. Without Scripture, I would be confused about who I am and what was my purpose in life. Without my Bible, I would not know about sin or understand true righteousness. Without God's Word, I would not know how to handle sex or money, or success, or power, or acclaim. Without scripture, I would have no understanding of origins, or any concept of eternity. Without the word, I, I would ask people and material things to do for me, things that they didn't have the power to do. Without God's word, I would have no idea that I needed to be rescued. Without my Bible, I would have no understanding of what it means to love or, or what it means that I should hate certain things. Apart from God's word, I would ha have no wise and holy law to follow and no amazing grace to give me hope. <laughs> he says, the way I understand everything in my life has been shaped by the body of wisdom that is found only in this book. If it were not for scripture, I would have no wisdom worth sharing. Now, this is a guy who's written 30 books, so he was saying, none of these would mean anything. I they're all based on this one book. Everything I'm sharing with you, everything I'm giving to you, he's saying, in all the books I've written, come out of this one single book. He says, my Bible is my most treasured possession. My Bible is my lifelong friend and companion. My Bible is my wisest and most faithful teacher. My Bible is my mentor. It's my guide. My Bible confronts me when I'm wrong and comforts me when I'm struggling. And I, I will never quit studying it until I am in my final home. The Bible's not just a book. It's God's message to his people about what it means to know him and how they should live their lives. It's a book that has power to change our lives. Well, Paul tells Timothy in the passage we're going to look at this morning, 
that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And in this passage, he's going to tell us three things. He's going to tell us where it came from, its source. He's going to tell us what it's useful for. And he's going to tell us the effect it will have on us. First then, the nature of Scripture. What what is the source of this book? Paul tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. This is a God-breathed book. Now, now some translations say all Scripture is inspired by God. They're saying the same thing, but the the actual words that are used here are God-breathed. And to say that scriptures are God-breathed is just a way of saying they come straight from God. Breathing, you know, has two parts. You, you inhale, there's inspiration, and then you exhale, there, there's expiration. You take air in and you blow air out, right? Well, it's really the second part of the breathing process that we're focusing on here. Scripture is not something God takes into himself. It's something that... God gives out from himself. He breathes it out. John Stott puts it this way. He says, it originated in God's mind and was communicated from God's mouth by God's breath or spirit. In other words, scripture comes directly from God. It comes out of God. It's therefore accurately called the word of God. You know, you ever think of what a word is? A word is something that that gives some substance to a thought. You know, if I'm thinking about something and I I form a word for it, then I can describe what I'm thinking about. A word reveals thoughts. And breathed out points to God's initiative and influence as a source of Scripture. It's just a way of saying that Scriptures have their origin in God. Now, we know the Scriptures were written down by men. But according to this, their source is God. They're not just human thoughts about God. Men weren't just writing their thoughts about God. They are not ideas someone had about God that God approved of and said, yeah, that's that's an accurate picture. They are the very words of God himself that were imparted without error through various authors. Peter said, I shared this last time, that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These words have their origin in God. God moved human authors of Scripture in order that their words would be true without error, complete, and wholly reliable. Theologian Carl Henry defines inspiration as the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, whereby the sacred writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, being restrained from error and guided in the choice of words they used. Charles Hodge, the the great Princeton theologian back when, before it became a liberal university, said this, he said, inspiration was the influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men which rendered them organs of God 
for the infallible communication of his mind and will. They were organs of God in the same sense that they, what they say, God said. What the men spoke or wrote were the very words of God. The bottom lines, the scriptures are as reliable as God is. If God's the source of truth, if he's true in what he says, and if he breathed out the scriptures, then the words of this book are as reliable and timeless as God himself. So the scriptures came from God. But how do they benefit us specifically? That's what Paul goes on and addresses here. He, says, he talks about the value of Scripture. And Paul tells it, Timothy that the, the Word of God is useful. Not only is it inspired by God, but it's useful. It's useful to us in a variety of ways. And then he lists four of them. He said it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, it's been suggested that the first two words, teaching and rebuking, have to do with what we should believe, and the last two words, correcting and training in righteousness, tell us how we should behave. In other words, the first two words are, are more focused on doctrine, and the second two are focused more on lifestyle. And so Paul tells Timothy that it's useful for teaching. That's telling us what's right. Rebuking, telling us what's not right, what we're believing that is wrong, Correcting, telling us how to get it right, <laughs> and training in righteousness, how to stay right. So let's look at those four, four phrases here. First of all, we're talking sound doctrine here. It's, it's good for teaching and telling us what's right. Scriptures teach us the truth about ourselves, about God, about our world. You know how truth it's hard to find today. <laughs> I mean, everybody has their own truth today. I don't know if you've noticed, but the majority of people you speak to are experts. <laughs> Have you noticed that? You know what an expert is? Expert, X is a quantity unknown, and spurt is a drip of water. So they're unknown drips, right? <laughs> but everybody's an expert. I mean, everywhere I go, I, I, get, I get talking to people, on, and they come, they're so confident about what they're talking about. They're always, they always know. But what I'm trying to get across this morning is that it's not what we think is right that matters. It's what God thinks is right that matters. If he's truly our creator... And what he thinks is what really matters. Even among Christians, there's a wide variety of, uh, of views about every kind of thing. And, and one of the things we're doing is we all have our image of what Jesus is like, right? We, we find the verses that describe the Jesus we want. And we build our Jesus out of those verses, <laughs> And the verses where we're not, not so excited about, we kind of push those aside and we don't let those influence us too much. A.W. Tozer said this. He says, there's a great many false Christ among us today. He says, there's the romantic Christ of the female novelist. There's the sentimental Christ of the half-converted cowboy. 
I wonder what a half-converted cowboy is. There's the philosophical Christ of the academic egghead. And there's the cozy Christ of the effeminate poet. And there's the muscular Christ of the all-American halfback. I added a few. He wrote a, a generation ago. I added a few to Tozer's list. I said there's the forever smiling Christ of the positive thinker. There's the unmerciful Christ of the contemporary Pharisee. There's the always tolerant Christ of today's relativist. And there's the overly generous Christ of the spiritual materialist, the prosperity gospel person. In reality, there's only one true Christ. There, there is a real Christ. Everybody's got their own version of him, but there is one true Christ, and that is the Christ of the Bible, the whole Bible. And the Bible unveils this Christ for us. We wouldn't know who he was outside of the Bible. We wouldn't know who he was by just picking and choosing parts of the Bible. We have to put it together to understand who he is. The Bible teaches us who Christ is. The scripture keeps our doctrine pure, not only by teaching the truth, but also by correcting us when we have, get off into tangents or we're in error. And so secondly, it's, it's, it's profitable for rebuking. Rebuking is telling us what's not right. To rebuke is to reprove someone or to show their fault or to reveal their error. It can be a moral error or it can be a doctrinal error. Scripture is profitable when it does that, when it shows us that we're wrong. Today we decide what's right and then we find the scriptures that agree with us. But if you put the scripture together and read it, it'll say this is wrong. And if it says it's wrong, we don't say that's not culturally relevant today. That We don't have to believe that today because cultures change. That's for a different time. No, scripture says it's wrong. It's wrong. Solomon once said, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. And whether we understand it or not, a rebuke is an act of love. Daniel Dornati pointed out that today people tend to view rebuke as a very negative thing. They expect church to be a safe place where people enjoy unconditional acceptance, where they can be themselves without fear of judgment. Rebuke, however, means to convince or expose. You know, in Greek, the verb means not merely to reply to someone, but to refute an opponent. It's what's used of a lawyer who's trying to convince a judge and a jury of the specific wrong actions in the opponent's case. The Bible exposes the sin in our lives and, and convinces us that we're wrong. You know, in today's self-esteem culture, a pastor's rebuke isn't always welcome. I mean, if you're doing something wrong, do you want someone to tell you you're wrong? Usually you're choosing to do something wrong, and you don't want anybody pointing out that what you're doing is wrong. Why would you want someone to point out something that's wrong in your life? Well, the answer is because sin will ruin your life. <laughs> and it's by exposing your sin that that you're brought to the place where you confess it where, and you turn from it and you seek to avoid it in the future. Uh, 
Also, we need convincing we're wrong because we're so good at justifying ourselves and our actions and blame others for the problems that our, our sin creates. You know, Here's an interesting verse. I'm reading in the New, New Living Translation, but listen to this one. Proverbs says this. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry at the Lord. Have you ever seen that? If you're not using the Bible to define and confront your sin, then you're not going to be growing the way you need to grow as a person who, who knows God. You're not going to be dealing with the issues in your life that, that are out of line. James Montgomery Boyce was speaking once at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he told this story. He said there was a little boy who loved his mother's homemade uh, strawberry jam. And one day she made some fresh jam, and she put it up on a high shelf, and she told him, now, don't get into it. And then she went off and did some errands. He resisted for a little while, but he kept looking about it and thinking about it. And so he took a stool over. He climbed up on the stool. He reached into the jar and took a big dip out of it. And then he took another dip, and he had several big fingers full of strawberry jam. And then he heard his mother coming back in, and he quickly got back down and off the chair and acted like he had done nothing. His mother came in and said, Johnny, have you been in the strawberry jam? And he looked her right in the eye and said, no. And she said, Johnny, a second time, have you been in the jam? His eyes fell a little lower to her belt line, and he said, no. <laughs> Third time she asked, this time his eyes fell clear down to her shoes, and he still said no, and she asked him a fourth time, and he looked so low, he saw his shirt, and there was strawberry jam all over his shirt. And Boyce said this, he said, that's how the repeated reading of God's word works on us, to bring it to the place where it applies to us. He says, the first time you hear something, you say, oh my gosh, that's my annoying neighbor. I wish they were Christians and had this book and they could read that, you know. The second time, it's like, yeah, this is good stuff for those difficult people at church. You know, I wish the people in our church were, would get a hold of that. The third time, it's, uh, I wish my wife and kids would read this. It would really improve our home life. And the fourth time, you look down and you see a spot on your shirt and you say, hey, there's something for me here too. I need to deal with something in my own life. It's so easy to keep looking at the people around me and thinking, they need this. And yet, I hardly come to any instruction in God's word that I don't need to repent after I read it. You know, because... In some way, I'm doing it. Jesus accepts sinners. That's true. But then he immediately goes to work to transform them. And Daniel Doranati says this. He says that the difference between accepting love and transforming love is this. He says, he says well, basically, he, goes, he says that you really need both in your life. You need accepting love and you need transforming love. He says... 
Transforming love wants people to become the best version of themselves. It, 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 want, it wants to do more than just accept somebody. It wants them to really become the person they should be. He says, transforming love and accepting love need each other. He says, transforming love without accepting love criticizes and pesters and is never satisfied. If you're just trying to get, if somebody's just trying to transform you and get the best version of you, you're always going to feel put down by them to some extent. And if you have just transforming love without accepting love, you feel like you never measure up. But if you have just accepting love without transforming love, it decays into indulgence and even neglect, and it it keeps you stuck in in a place you shouldn't be. And so the Lord offers us both acceptance and transformation. So Scripture rebukes or points out sins and false thinking because it cares about us. It wants us to become the people who will be happy and and well-formed and satisfied in the Lord It wants to transform us. Rebukes should lead to correction. After Scripture reveals an error, we need to turn from our sinful way of living. Godly reproof always aims at correction. Judgment or condemnation is never the final goal. It's not just to judge someone and show them where they're wrong. It's it's trying to bring them to a place where they're living in, in a joyful, healthy place. And so the next two words are kind of focusing, there's some overlap here, but it's, they're focusing a little more on sound living. Correcting is telling us how to get it right. We need more than just doctrine. We need to be obedient. We need to live out what we hear. Francis Schaeffer, I've shared his story with you before parts of it, but he was used by God to start a movement to combat liberalism in the Presbyterian Church. The movement was, was supposed to be a fight for doctrinal purity, when the church was drifting from it. But eventually, Schaefer became disillusioned with the movement, and he left the movement. And the reason he gave for living it was they were getting doctrinal correctness okay, but he says that's only the starting point. It should go on to a living relationship, and they were replacing a living relationship with doctrinal correctness. And there are a growing number of Christians who are not satisfied with knowledge alone. They hunger for something deeper. They hunger for a spiritual reality. God's word was given not only to correct our thinking, it was also given to show us how God wants us to live. The Bible doesn't just tell us where we're wrong and leave us there. It shows us how to get right with God, how to get right with others, how to be right with ourselves. And when we become aware of sin in our lives, the Bible tells us what to do with it. It tells us to confess it and to receive forgiveness. It tells us to be reconciled with people we have wronged. It tells us to to overcome harmful habits, to break off harmful alliances. It tells us to mend broken relationships. And the Bible's useful for correcting our behavior. It's also useful for training us in righteousness, telling us how to stay right. Think of going to the gym when you think of this one. Going through the process of of getting yourself into a healthy place. Once we're back on the path, the Bible is telling us how to stay on the path. Training is the process where God teaches us how to live. The Greek word from which 
We derive our English word training here as the word pedagogy. It's based on the idea of a child being guided into adulthood. A pedagogue was, was like a teacher. You do this not merely by correcting the child it's, and pointing out where they're wrong. Just correcting and pointing out where they're wrong, somebody described as trying to drive by looking in the rear view mirror, seeing where you've been instead of where you're going. Training shows the right way to behave before mistakes are made. It's preventative behavior. And God's word shows you how to live so you don't make the mistakes that need correction. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to say, I have a high view of this book, and it's another thing to live like you have a high view of this book. The Bible is useful for showing us how to live the way God wants us to live. So finally, then, what are the effects of Scripture? Well, not only is God's Word inspired and practical, it's also sufficient to prepare us for life and godliness. Look at verse 17. Paul says that God's Word is given to us so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wayne Campbell, uh, a couple weeks ago, shared with me a Greek word. Um, he's our resident Greek scholar. He's had a lot of training in Greek language, and I appreciate his knowledge of the Greek a lot. But he pointed out that the word equipped here is a word that means completely outfitted. Uh, this, this is a word like on the old wagon trains. If, if you had a wagon... A covered wagon and you had all the supplies you needed in for a trip then it was completely equipped for the trip a completely fitted vehicle would have everything needed for the task at hand and a fully outfitted Christian is one who has everything they need for the work that God has called him or her to do Taking God's word in on a regular basis is how Christians become fully equipped, fully supplied, and completely outfitted to live the Christian life and to serve God. God's word gives us what we need to be who God wants us to be. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us to live right. And we don't have a high view of God's word until we love and cherish it, until we want to obey and keep it. We need to constantly be turning to God's word. We need to constantly find God in his word. We need to constantly be studying this old book. You don't master it and move on. George George Mueller once shared that he made a mistake of starting his days with prayer. Now, if any of you know who George Mueller was, that should be really surprising to you. George Mueller was a man who was known for his powerful prayer life. That's probably the thing you know most about him. In his journal, he logged 50,000 answers to prayer. I've had five. Five thousand of which were answered the same day he prayed them. 
I, I don't know anybody who's had a more effective prayer life than George Mueller. How, how could a man so known for prayer say that it was a mistake to start his day with prayer? I mean, what would he even mean by that? Well, I'm going to let him explain himself. I'll share it in his own words. He says this. For at least 10 years, my practice had been to give myself to prayer first thing after having dressed in the morning. Now I see the most important thing I have to do is to give myself to the reading of God's word and to meditate on it so that my heart is comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed. And through this meditation on God's word, my heart might be brought into fellowship with my Lord. He says, the, the difference between my earlier practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible, and I often suffered from a wandering mind for the first 10 to 15 minutes or even half hour before I really began to pray. I scarcely struggle with that now, for my heart has been nourished by the truth and is brought into sweet communion with God. I now speak to my father and my friend about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. It often now astonishes me that I did not see this sooner. No book taught it to me. No minister ever brought it up to me. There was no private conversation with a brother that stirred me to do this. And yet now, since God has taught me this, it is as plain to me as anything else that the first thing a child of God must do morning by morning is to feed his inner man on God's word and let your prayers come out of that. Too many of us never have an effective prayer life because we try to pray before we're fed. It's like exhaling only and never taking air in. You can't do that for very long. The message this morning is really simple. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a call to, to continue to be centered in this book, to constantly be in this book. It's a call to read it and study it and meditate on it and understand what it really is, that it is really God's word. And I pray that we won't be satisfied giving assent to God's word, that we'll be fully committed to it. And my prayer is that we would let God transform us through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving us guessing about who you are or what you desire, what we should do or what we should believe. We thank you for giving it to us in writing. If it weren't given to us in writing, our, our, our subjective thoughts would take us all over the place. We want to learn to be directed by your word. We want to understand what it means that your word is truth. We want to live by your word. We don't want to view it as something that's timed out and is no longer relevant for us. We pray that by your spirit, we would understand your word and be able to apply it to our lives and that you would help us to, to live in your word and live out your word on a daily basis. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.